saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip. He wrenched it out of socket. So they're wrestling, and that there hip breaker guy, that's supposed to be God? Yep. When pigs fly. Well, <laughs> me. I'm not sure how to follow up on that particular video, to be honest with you. But I'm glad that you're here with us today. I'm also thankful those watching on TV and on the stream. We're glad that you're a part. All the multi-site campuses as well. We're, we're so grateful for you. Also, those watching us in the prisons that we go into. God's not given up on you, friend. I want you to know that. And this church hasn't given up on you either. Has this church given up on those folks? No. We believe in you. We know that God's still got a plan and a purpose for your life. So go after it with everything you've got. Hold on to the Lord. All right. I want to give you a quick update on a couple of quick things. One is about my ear. Uh, for those of you who weren't here a couple of weeks ago, I shared one of our messages that I was washing dishes, which is a, a great example that we should never, men should never wash dishes, because I was, I was washing the dishes, my ear went deaf. I lost all, it's called sudden hearing loss, and I, I went to an audiologist two days later, and they told me I had lost 93% of my hearing in my left ear. Well, I came to you, and I asked you to pray for me. I told you I was going to get the best doctors, the best medicine I could get, and I wanted the best people people praying for me. And this past Tuesday, I had a second audiology test, and I, my hearing has increased now. I've only lost 50%, which is exciting because uh, they, they told me, they said, if, if you would have stayed where you were at, a hearing aid wouldn't have helped you because you're, you couldn't, there was nothing to amplify. But because this has happened, and of course, we're all high-fiving, going absolutely crazy. So because this has happened, if you need to get a hearing aid at some point, then, you know, you can get one. And I just thought to myself, my God's not done. My God's not done. You know, he's not done. He's still on the throne. And if he, this is all I get, great. But I'm just going to keep praying. I, and I really do appreciate, I appreciate so much uh, all of your prayers. Listen, all of us are going through something. All of us are facing something. That's why on the Sagebrush app, there's an opportunity that says prayer requests. Please share your prayer requests. We need to help each other, carry each other's burdens. No one should face anything alone. And here on the Riverside campus, we have a prayer wall. Take some time, write out a prayer request, put it in the prayer wall. We're adding these to all of our multi-site campuses, and we have a group of people that come up every Thursday at 11 o'clock, and they pray over every one of those requests. And many of you showed up these past couple of Thursdays. We do it every single week. It's over in room 112. If you live in the metro area, come over on Thursdays and spend some time interceding on behalf of other people. So I want to give you a quick update uh, on all of that. Second thing is that we have just merged with another church. Uh, this is Uptown Church in the Uptown area. Here's a video of the outside facilities. Uh, they came to us, their sweet pastor and their sweet congregation, and they said, we want to join forces with you. And so they have handed over the keys to their building, to their offering, to everything basically. And now together we're going to join arms and we're going to advance the kingdom of God. Now this is getting remodeled right now and it will open up in the middle to end of October. And so this is a new spot for us, about a mile away from the uptown area. And it's going to be a chance for us to reach people like we never 
have reached people before. Now, a lot of our friends at the Highland campus are moving over to the Uptown campus because it's just three miles distance between the two. So you're probably wondering, what's going to happen to our Highland campus if we move all the people over to there? Well, one of the things that God has laid on our heart, and he's had it on our heart for years and years and years, is that Sagebrush needs to have a Spanish-speaking church. And so that's what we're going to do with our Highland campus is we're going to look for a good staff, a good pastor who's bilingual, and we'll have Spanish-speaking services in that area of town. 60% of that neighborhood speaks Spanish, and that's all they speak. So this is our opportunity to spread the message of Jesus, and here's the hope that this will be the beginning prototype of many, many Spanish-speaking sagebrush campuses. We'd like to see a whole network of these go throughout the city. So isn't it exciting to be a part of a church where they, God does those kinds kinds of things. So much fun. So much fun. All right, we're in the middle of this series called When Pigs Fly, looking at some of the craziest stories in the Bible. So let me start off by telling you a crazy story. There was this guy named Bob, and he loved to go garage sale shopping. So he goes to garage sale shopping on the Saturday morning, and there's a sign that says, everything must go. Well, he's kind of looking around, doesn't really see anything, but back behind some of the stuff, uh, kind of under a little bit of a tarp, he sees the front end of a Harley Davidson motorcycle. So he turns over to the guy who's standing there behind the card table, and he says, is the Harley for sale in the garage sale? And the guy looks at his wife, and he said, well, she says everything's got to go, so I guess I'll sell that too. He said, how much do you want for the Harley? He said, it's never worked. The engine's all jacked up. It's all seized up. I've never been able to get it to run. How, How does $35 sound to you? The guy said, you got to be kidding me. I'll pay you $35 right now on the money. So he paid him $35, wheeled it to his truck, took it to his garage, didn't think a thing about it for three or four weeks. After about three, four weeks, he had a little bit of extra time. He thought, I think I'll go work on that Harley Davidson, get some parts, see if I can tinker with it, see if I can get it running again. So he writes down the serial number to the motorcycle, calls the Harley Davidson dealership, rattles off the serial number and begins to tell him the problem that he's having with the engine and the parts that he thinks he's going to need. The guy on the other end of the phone says, well, let me look that up. I'll get back to you. Well, he didn't hear back from the guy. A couple of days goes by. Bob didn't think much about it. All of a sudden, his phone rings. But this time, it's not the parts guy at the Harley-Davidson dealership. This is a Harley-Davidson executive from the national headquarters. He said, Bob, I understand that you've got a motorcycle. Can I confirm the serial number with you? He said, absolutely. So they rattled off the serial number. He said, that's correct. He said, would you mind going out in your garage and taking a screwdriver and taking off the seat and see if there's anything engraved on the bottom of the seat? So Bob put the phone down, went in the garage, took off the seat, and on the back side of the seat in metal, someone had engraved the king. So he walked back in, grabbed the phone. He said, "Uh, it says the king. There was a long silence on the phone. And the Harley-Davidson executive broke the silence and said, Bob, I've been authorized by my boss to offer you $300,000 for that motorcycle. He was shocked. He's like, I I, I don't don't know, I don't know. Let me talk to my wife. Let me talk to my wife. What sort of talk about your wife about? That's what I've got to wonder. (laughs) Make the deal, dude. He writes down the guy's name, number says, I'll get back to you. Next morning, gets a phone call. It's Jay Leno, former talk show host of The Tonight Show. He said, Bob, I understand you got a motorcycle for sale. I'd like to give you a half a million dollars for it. 
Now, why is it that a garage sale find of $35 all of a sudden is worth a half a million dollars? Well, I think you probably already figured it out. This motorcycle was once owned by Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. Isn't that an amazing story? I heard you, ooh, and oh, as you heard that story. It's not true. It's not. It's one of those internet stories that comes up from time to time, and people retell it over and over again as if it is true. And Jay Leno would like me to let you know that it's not true because he's asked this question every single week of his life. Now, the reason I tell you that little tale is because we're looking at some crazy stories in the Bible, but here's the difference. Every one of them happened. Every one of them is true. And today, we're going to look at the story about a man who actually wrestles with God. And the story is found in Genesis chapter 32. Now, let me, let me give you a little background to this wrestling match. We have Jacob, okay? Now, let me tell you who Jacob is. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. Remember, God came to Abraham, so I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And if you'll follow me and obey me, it'll outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. And so Abraham obeyed, right? And God promised him a child. So Abraham was married to Sarah. They had a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac grows up, gets married to a girl by the name of Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca have twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Now, even though Jacob and Esau are twins, they don't look alike at all. Esau is the first one to come out, and then they named that child after his worst physical characteristic, because the name Esau means hairy. So I'm guessing Rebecca gave birth to Chewbacca. You understand what I'm talking about? Or maybe it looked like a Monchichi, maybe a Furby. I don't know. Just a big hairy mess came out. And then they named the child after its worst physical characteristics. That'd be like your child coming out and you look at your little girl and you say, what shall we name her? Oh, I know. Let's name her Unibrow. That's what you're thinking, right? Or we'll call, nickname her Caterpillar, right? Or you have a son and he comes out with the biggest floppiest ears you ever saw. And you think to yourself, if a good tailwind comes up, he's going to start flying like never before. And you think, let's name him Dumbo, right? That's what you're thinking in that moment. That is a parenting mistake. Now, Jacob also didn't do too well when they named him because he came out a few minutes later. The name Jacob means deceiver. And that's what he is. When I get telling you the whole story about this guy, he is a deceiver of deceivers. He's a conniver. He's a liar. One other thing I want you to know about Jacob, before I tell you one more difference between the two boys, is that Jacob is also a runner. Whenever he gets himself in trouble, whenever he deceives somebody and the consequences are coming his way, he never owns any of it. He always runs away as fast as he can. Let me tell you another difference between uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau was a skilled hunter. Let's just say that Jacob was someone who enjoyed his time with his mom cooking in the kitchen. And another thing that was interesting is that Esau wasn't very smart. He, he wasn't very bright. He was a few clowns short of a circus. His driveway didn't reach all the way to the end. He was a hot dog short of a picnic. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And Jacob, on the other hand, was extremely intelligent, but he didn't use his intelligence for good. He used his intelligence for evil. Well, Esau is the firstborn just by a couple of minutes. That means he gets first rights as a firstborn to the birthright and to the blessing. Now, Esau is not very sharp. He doesn't care one thing about that birthright. In fact, he sells it to Jacob because Jacob deceives him for a bowl of stew. But the blessing was another deal. Esau wanted that blessing. 
and Jacob wanted that blessing. I'm sure those two boys grew up hearing their dad talk about the day that Abraham put his hands upon him and blessed him. This is a blessing of God. This is the favor of God. And Esau wants that blessing. Well, Isaac is now old, he's, he's going blind, and uh, he says to his son Esau, go out and catch something and make me a meal, and then I will pass down the blessing on to you. Well, one of the things that was dysfunctional about this family is that Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. There was favoritism in the parenting, and Rebekah really wanted Jacob to have the blessing. So she came up with a plan. She put on some hairy skins from animals onto Jacob because Esau was so hairy. Then he she taught Jacob to change his voice to sound like Esau. Then she prepared a meal quickly while Esau was out hunting his game, sent Jacob into the tent, poor blind Isaac, and he comes back in and he says, I've had great success. Here is the meal. Now bless me, Father. And Isaac is absolutely certain that he's talking to Jacob and he knows what a liar and what a deceiver he is. So he has him come closer, he smells him, smells like Esau, he feels him, he feels like Esau, but his voice isn't just quite right. He thinks something's not right, but he goes ahead and he blesses Jacob. Well, Esau comes back from the fields and he finds out what his brother has done and he is so livid, he's so mad. And he goes to Jacob and he says, listen, as long as dad's alive, I'll let you live. But the day dad dies, I'm going to kill you. Now remember, Jacob is a runner. So what does he do? He runs away as quickly as he can. Rather than going to his brother and saying, I am so sorry. I, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong of me. Will you forgive me? Is there any way I can make things right between the two of us? No, no, no. This kid always runs from trouble. He always runs from his pain. He always runs from his circumstances. He never sees his dad ever again after this day. Never sees his mom ever again. It's years, decades go by before he ever sees his brother ever again. So he runs. Where does he run to? He runs to Uncle Laban's house. And Uncle Laban, he happens to have two daughters. One girl's name's Leah. The other girl's name is Rachel. And they're sisters, but they don't look the same. One is very beautiful. One isn't. The Bible describes Leah as someone who has weak eyes. I don't know what that means. Was she cross-eyed? Was she far-sighted? Was she nearsighted? Did she fall down a lot? I don't know what was wrong with her eyes. But I know this, that Rachel, the Bible says, was lovely and beautiful in every way. And the Bible rarely describes the beauty of someone. So the, what the Bible's trying to tell the reader is this. This girl's smoking hot. That's what the Bible's trying to say. And so Jacob obviously falls in love with the younger sister, Rachel, who is smoking hot. And he makes a deal. The deceiver, Jacob, makes a deal with Laban. He says, I'll work for you for seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. So he works the seven years. It's now time for the wedding night. I'm guessing the lights were low. I'm guessing there was alcohol involved. I'm thinking there was a veil over the bride, maybe some Ray-Ban shades over her eyes. I don't know what in the world was going on. But Laban decides in his heart of hearts that he can't marry off his younger daughter while his older daughter isn't married. So he does a switcheroo, and Jacob ends up marrying Leah. So he thinks he's going to bed with Rachel, he wakes up the next morning next to Leah. Now, if that doesn't describe marriage, I don't know what does. <laughs> you go to bed thinking you're with Rachel and you wake up with Leah. You know what I'm saying? I know I'm going to get emails for that one, aren't I? That was pretty good right there. 
Well, Jacob, the deceiver, is upset that he's had the switcheroo done on him. And he goes to Laban and says, hey, man, you've done me wrong. And Laban says, listen, work for me another seven years. And and you can go ahead and have Rachel as your bride today. And so Jacob thinks that's a good idea. He says, now, you're not a good move at this point in time. So he's the first person to marry a couple of sisters. This is not going to bode well for him. Friends, how many times in your life have you had a plan and you thought your plan was so awesome, so wonderful, and whatever decision you made changed the complete trajectory of the rest of your life? That's what Jacob is facing here. Well, Jacob is a deceiver. Well, guess what? After the switcheroo, we know Laban is a deceiver too. And that's what they do the entire time they have a relationship with each other. Laban changes Jacob's wages 10 different times, but Jacob says, you know, I'm going to get Laban back. Whenever I've made his animals out in the fields, I'm going to take the best animals for my, for my cattle, my sheep, my goats, and I'm going to give him the leftovers. I'm going to give him those that are lame, those that are blind, those that are spotted, but the best I'll keep for myself. So Jacob basically deceives Laban, lines his pockets with the best of the livestock, the cows, the goats, the sheep. Eventually, he realizes he's got enough money to take off for himself, and Laban is beginning to figure out what Jacob is doing, so he figures it's time for him to run once again. Again, friends, he's a runner. He never owns anything. He doesn't take responsibility for anything. He runs away from trouble as quick as he can get into it. So he grabs his wives, he grabs his children, grabs his servants, grabs all of the livestock that he has, and he takes off. Well, Laban finds out what's going on. And so Laban decides to chase him down. But God has revealed to Laban not to touch Jacob. And so they have a conversation when Laban catches up. And Laban basically says this, if I ever see your face again, if you cross this border, I'll kill you on that day. So Jacob, all the deception, all the evil things that he's done, it's finally catching up to him, isn't it? See, now he can't go this way because Laban's going to kill him. And guess what's happened in the other direction? That's where Esau lives. And years earlier, what did Esau say? He said, I ever see you again, I will kill you on that day. Jacob doesn't know what to do. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't have any place to run anymore. He has to face the consequences of what he's become. And so he gets a messenger together, and they put a whole bunch of prizes and and gifts together, and they, they send them on ahead. He's hoping that maybe time has softened Esau's stance towards him, that maybe Esau will somehow forgive him for the terrible things that he's done to him. But here's what's interesting. When the messenger comes back, here's what the messenger tells Jacob. He says, we met your brother Esau. He's already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. This is not good. So he realizes that his brother is coming to kill him. So Jacob, the deceiver, comes up with a plan. This is what he decides to do. He takes his wives, divides them into two different groups, Takes his children, divides them in two different groups. Takes his servants, divides them in two different groups. Takes his livestock, divides them in two separate groups. And he sends them on ahead of him. Because here's his thought. He thinks Esau can't attack and kill both groups. So one of the groups is going to survive. He doesn't know which group is going to survive. But he's going, you ready for this? He's going to stay back at camp. 
and watch from a distance which group gets attacked so he can meet up with the other group later on. He's trying everything in his power to save his own neck. He's a despicable individual, isn't he? So he stays back in the camp, and that's when God says, that's it. That's enough. And that's when God wrestles with Jacob. Now, the Bible starts off saying that a man entered the camp and wrestled with him. But then later on in the passage, we find out that the man is an angel of the Lord. And it's all in capital letters if you're reading from the King James Bible. And most scholars believe that this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. So you think that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And yes, he was, but Jesus has always been. We worship one God who's appeared in three different forms. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's eternal. He's always been. There are many appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament, and this is one of those appearances. Let's look at it. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. And when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip. So get this. So when he saw that Jacob wasn't going to let go of him, when he saw that he wasn't going to overcome Jacob, when he saw that Jacob wasn't going to run away, that's key. Because he was willing to release him, but Jacob continued to hold on to him. When he realized that the runner was finally done running, What did he do? He touched Jacob's hip. He wrenched it out of socket. Then the man said, let me go from the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's saying, I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to quit at this. I'm staying here. I'm going to struggle through this. And the man said, what's your name? He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you'll be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Look at verse 29. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Now, what in the world is going on with this crazy story? Well, it's one point, friends. Write this down. It was time for Jacob to come clean before God. This encounter with God was long overdue. For some of you in this room and some of you watching at home, this encounter with God is long overdue, isn't it? Truth be told, you've been running your whole life. Running from what you've decided to do, running from the people that you've hurt, running from your regrets. You've been running. And God's been chasing you down. And so just by coincidence, you found me on the TV or you had someone invite you to come to church, and wouldn't you know it, this is the thing that we're talking about, somebody who's running from God, and you're like, well, that's what I've done my whole entire life. I've done my own thing, I've gone my own way, and I'm tired of running. I want to make things right with God, but I'm scared to death that if I do it, God's going to slam me, and God's going to make me feel worse about myself than I already do. If you're a runner, friends, listen to me, you're in good company because everybody in this room is a runner too, at least at one time in their life. Every one of us thought at some point in time we knew better than God, and we went our own direction, we did our own thing. We thought we were so smart, weren't we? And we deceived other people, and we deceived ourselves. But God chased us down. 
God got a hold of us and he changed the whole trajectory of our life. There was a famous poet years ago who wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. The poet's name is Francis Thompson. He wrote it because he knew he wasn't living his life for God. He knew he'd been running away from God and he felt like the hound of heaven was on his tail to pursue him. And he believed in his heart of hearts for the longest time that God was pursuing him to slam him. But what he found was the hound of heaven was trying to rescue him from himself. This is what he wrote. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. But God kept tracking him down like a hound after a fox. God would not give up. Isn't that the whole story of the Bible? God just won't give up. You read through the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham, says, if you follow me, you'll obey me, I'll make you a blessing, and your nation will be a blessing to all the other nations. If you'll just follow me, you'll just love me, you'll just do life together with me. And what did the people of Israel do all throughout the Old Testament? They ignored God. They worshiped false gods. They worshiped the gods of pleasure. They worshiped the gods of sex. They worshiped the gods of money. Sound like any culture you know today? They turned their backs on God. God sent prophets to warn them. He said, repent of your sin. Come to your senses. I am the Lord God. I've got a great plan for your life. Go my direction. And they ran the opposite way. And God told them again and again and again, if you don't repent, you're going to face consequences. Enemy nations are going to come. I will no longer be your protection. Terrible things are going to happen. And you say, how in the world could a good and loving God allow that to happen? He was disciplining them. God disciplines those that he loves. And he knew they were so arrogant and so stubborn and so rebellious that their hard hearts had to be broken. And so their hearts would be broken. They'd return to God for a brief amount of time. And then guess what they started doing again? They ran again. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. And when the Old Testament ends, it appears that God has given up the pursuit, doesn't it? Because there's 400 years between when the Old Testament ends and when the New Testament begins. 400 years. Our country's like 250 years old. 400 years of silence. There's no, there's no prophetic words. There's no word from God for 400 years. There's no angel visitations for 400 years. And everybody thinks that God's abandoned them, that God's forgotten them. And then the greatest event in human history happens. God becomes flesh and dwells among us. God walks our earth. This becomes very personal for him. God comes to rescue us from ourselves. Jesus knows what he has to do. He has to live a perfect, sinless life. He has to be betrayed and abandoned. He has to be accused of a crime he didn't commit. He has to be crucified with nails in his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns upon his head. For six hours one Friday, he hangs on a cross and all of our sin is placed upon him. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Last thing he said, his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. 
But he didn't stay dead, did he? Because three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. Do you know what the cross of Jesus Christ is? And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is? It represents how far God's willing to go to win your heart. He won't give up. He will go through hell for you. So he won't spend heaven without you. Can you feel him coming after you? Can you feel him hot on the pursuit? And I'm talking to those who haven't asked Jesus in their life, and I'm talking to those who did. Because let me tell you something about people who are followers of Jesus Christ. They also have a tendency to run away from him too, don't they? Even though you profess faith in him, even though you say he means everything to you, I bet you've got areas of your life that you're keeping from him. I bet you've got areas of your life that you're running away from him. And I want you to know he's pursuing you until you're fully surrendered. He's going to hunt you down, friend. And not to slam you, but to save you from yourself. You see, some of us came in here today with a critical spirit. You're sarcastic and you're cynical and you're the direct opposite of the attitude of Jesus Christ. And it's been bugging you that you become this Because you know this isn't what God's plan and purpose is for your life. And God, through the Holy Spirit, has been convicting you of this to turn this around, to repent of this, and yet you keep on running. It's time to ask God for a brand new heart, a heart that's pliable, a heart that's thankful, a heart that's one of encouragement to others and to yourself. Some of us, you've got an addiction. You've already given your life to Christ, but you still struggle with the alcohol. You still struggle with the drugs. You still struggle with the porn. And you've done all the condemnation stuff. You've shamed yourself to no end. And man, you've got a list of regrets like nobody's ever seen before. But rather than coming clean about your struggle to God and saying you need his strength and his power, you keep trying to plow along on your own. And you're failing. And you feel it. And you feel a distance between you and God. Do you hear him coming for you? He's not coming to slam you. He's coming to pick you back up again and help you be the person that he created you to be. Let me talk to the dads for just a second. I bring this up from time to time, but you do realize you're supposed to be the spiritual leader of your home. And yet most dads don't do jack squat with it. They come to church once every four to six weeks. They drop their kids over here in Kids Planet and they hope that we'll be able to teach them something about Jesus. Because all you want to teach them is how to throw a football or how to kick a soccer ball. Are you having devotionals with your family? When you pray over your kids, are you praying big, hairy, audacious prayers? Do you read the Word of God together? Do you memorize Scripture together? Do you understand you're the most influential person in their life? And don't you want them to have a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus? Wake up, Dad. You will be held accountable. You will be held accountable. Do you feel his pursuit? Yes, I know it's risky. Yes, I know it's scary. Yes, I know it's worth it. Some of us, my goodness, you you come in here and... uh, Some of you, you come in here and and you're still trying to fill the empty void that you have in your life with stuff. I mean, my goodness, you're on a first name basis with the Amazon delivery guy. Do you understand? You've got an issue, friend. 
Nothing this world has will satisfy you. It's just garbage. It just ends up being the highlight of your garage sale in five years. Why are you so empty? Because you pursue things and the stuff of this world more than you pursue Him. He's coming for you. Some of us have grown spiritually apathetic. Oh, there was a time. Oh, you were so close to the Lord. But you're barely hanging on. You don't pray. You don't read the Bible. And God is chasing you down to say, let's go back to what we once were. Let's go back to that intimacy. Let's go back to that prayer time. Let's go back to doing life together again. God pursues Jacob. It's interesting up until this point in time that when Jacob mentions God, he says he's the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He never says he's the God of Jacob until this encounter right here. You see, Jacob's problem was he had a secondhand faith. His faith was based upon the faith that his grandfather had and what his dad had, but he never developed it for himself. I know what that's like. I grew up in the church. My, my, my dad would say to me all the time, if you're going to live in my, under the roof of my house, you will go to church. So, so they, they drug me to church. I had a drug problem as a kid. They drug me to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They were drugging me all the time. That's what they were doing. I sat out there like many of you sit out there. I didn't care a lick about what that preacher had to say. I didn't pray when it was time to pray. I didn't sing. I just wanted to do my hour, and then I wanted to go live the way I wanted to live. I was running from God. Tell him in typewriting class one day, and a guy turns around and tells me how I could become a Christian. And that so shocked me because I told him I was one. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, why don't you live like it? And I went home, grabbed a Bible, read the Gospel of John. I got to John chapter 14, and I realized I wasn't a Christian because Jesus says over and over again, if you love me, you'll obey me. And I didn't obey him. I didn't love him. But I was so empty and so desperate. I was wrestling with God. Now, i got to be honest, my wrestling match wasn't anything like Jacob's. I surrendered. I was tired. I was tired of fighting. I wanted to hold on to him because I wanted the blessing of God. Some of you hear this story and you say, how in the world could Jesus not just wipe Jacob from the face of the earth? Well, the Bible kind of gives us a hint on how much Jesus was really wrestling. Because the word touch here actually means to lightly tap. It's the idea of someone coming up behind you and lightly tapping you on the shoulder. And when Jesus does that to Jacob, it wrenches the hip socket out of joint and he's in an incredible pain. And that's the interesting thing when it comes to wrestling with God. You leave with a blessing and you leave with a limp. What's the limp represent? Well, from this day forward, Jacob is going to have a limp. I think it represents his past scars, his past failures. Oh, you've been forgiven of your sins, so have I. But you still walk with a limp, don't you? Because you remember what you were doing. You remember the damage that you did. And you're so grateful to the Lord because he, he saved you from all of that. I think the limp also represents the fact that Jacob realizes that he'll have to lean on Jesus for the rest of the days of his life. Hebrews chapter 11, I think this is so cool. It's God's hall of faith, and he mentions all these people that they said were godly, but you and I both know they were messed up, jacked up sinners. This is what it says. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped 
as he leaned on the top of his staff. Jacob the liar, Jacob the deceiver, in God's hall of faith, he's leaning on the top of his staff. I just think that's cool. He had a limp to the day that he died. I wrote this down, you might want to as well. It was a reminder that he would rather walk with God with a limp than ever run from God again. Every step I take, every moment, is for him. So all I want to do is please him. And everything I say and everything, I fail all the time. But I want the blessing of God. And whatever limp he wants to give me along the way, I want to lean on him like never before. Are you tired of running? You tired of not being honest with yourself about what you really need to do business with God about? Today's the day to come clean. Today's the day to make things right. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how many of us have been running, running from your love and your grace, running from the truth that really is about who we are? Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us what needs changing. Lord, if there's any wicked way within us, reveal it to us so we might repent of it, so we might surrender it over to you. God, we want your blessing. We want to know you. We want to live for you. Lord, for those who are here today don't have a relationship with you, they've run their whole life and they're so empty and they're just sick of it. I pray today would be the day they'd stop the running and they'd run to you. They would find a God who loves them so much, who wants to forgive them for every rebellious thing they've ever done, that they would find grace and love and mercy like they never knew. Thank you, God, that you never give up the pursuit. May we recognize that today and give up running from you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.